The question that I was that I got interested in was, is there any way to learn behaviors in a physics simulator where you actually have access to hundreds of millions of labeled examples, but then somehow make that work when the robot is put out into the real world? You're listening to Gradient Descent, a show where we learn about making machine learning models work in the real world. I'm your host, Lucas Bewald. Josh is a researcher and an entrepreneur and a teacher. His work at OpenAI was on sim to real creating virtual environments to create training data for robotics. He also teaches my favorite maybe class on machine learning called Full Stack Deep Learning. And if you haven't taken that class, you absolutely should. Previously, he did his PhD in computer science at Berkeley under Peter Abiel. I'm super excited to talk to him. You know, I think uh, for a lot of people listening to this, um, just like knowing our, our demographics, I think a lot of people um, would probably be most interested kind of like learning about um, machine learning and, and they might even know you from, um, you know, some of the classes that you teach, which I think, you know, in my opinion, are some of the best classes uh, out there. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I have to say, I've, I've actually learned a lot from from watching you teach. Um, and I'm kind of curious, like, how did you even kind of get the idea of teaching a class? Like, how did that, how did that come up? The sort of all started to, to happen around two years ago. Um, and um, I was working at OpenAI at the time, and OpenAI was kind of going through an, an interesting transition, I would say, um, where when I first joined, it was really like, felt like a very traditional academic lab. Um, like it felt like the lab that I was at at Berkeley, uh, except, you know, more resources. Um, and, you know, at, at some point they figured out that like, there was a type of work that they were really uniquely suited to do um, that, you know, a typical academic lab is not well suited to do, which is these um, sort of larger projects that involve, um, you know, instead of just a couple of researchers working together, maybe a team of 12 or 15 um, folks, you know, mix of engineers and researchers with, you know, bigger budgets, more ambitious goals, um, and really, really put, like trying to push out these projects that, would um, you know sort of clearly mark a move forward in the state of the field, um, and you know so while this was happening, you know a big part of that change was we needed to figure out like how we are going to um, professionalize our process of, you know, of building machine learning models, right? And so um, you know on the on the robotics team which I was working on at the time, we were figuring out stuff like how do we write good tests for our machine learning code. Right, so that you don't lose the ability to train a model that you were able to train a couple of months ago, which happened to us multiple times. Um, and how do you actually like manage a team that has both folks that are you know doing speculative research stuff that you know may not be able to really measure their progress in any given week, and also like people who are doing very traditional engineering work that is you know where you can you can easily say like this is the goal for this week and have we met that goal? Um, right, and so you know we were we were trying to sort out all of these things and. Um, Around that time, I was talking to my PhD advisor at Berkeley, um, Peter Beal, and um, a friend of ours, um, Sergey Karyev, who um, was running at the time a um, sort of uh, machine learning for education um, company called GradeScope. And we were, we were kind of just swapping notes on on how you know we were approaching these things and how um, Peter had seen other companies approach these and um, and how how Sergey had um, approached some of this stuff at GradeScope. And we realized that there was this um, this whole like emerging engineering discipline, I would call it, around like you know you can you can go online and learn 
um, the math and the algorithms behind machine learning. Right? You can learn what a neural network is. Um, you can even really learn how to how to use TensorFlow um, and how to how to code this stuff up in an effective way. But um, at the time, there was like very little on everything else that you need in order to actually make this stuff work in the real world, right? Um, so, you know, not only the, the things I described, but also like, like how do you troubleshoot models? Um, how do you choose projects? How do you, um, you know, how do you manage teams? How do you deploy things into production? How do you monitor them when, once they're in production? Um, and so we realized that like, there's, you know, everyone that we knew of is, was sort of reinventing the wheel on all these practices. Um, and, you know, the, the number of people that, that are actually good at this is like very small. And um, they happen to be trapped in like a small handful of large technology companies in the Bay Area, let's say. Um, and so we, we just thought it'd be really good for the field if we um, wrote down everything that we knew about this stuff and everything that our friends knew about it. Um, and so that was kind of the genesis of the full stack deep learning class. But I guess what's amazing, well, I, I never really thought about it um, this way, but, you know, I feel like I've spent, um, you know, my, my career and I'm, I'm a little older than you, um, you know, kind of like studying, um, you know, making, you know, machine learning models work in the real world. Um, but like watching your class, I'm, I'm like learning a ton and I'm seeing, you know, you as like the, the expert. Um, how, how did you how did you get like up to speed on this stuff so fast? Was it just through the experience at, at OpenAI or? or um, cause your classes are amazingly deep. Yeah, it, it's a good question. I mean, I think, um, I was kind of at OpenAI at the most, most interesting point for this, right? Because we were sort of figuring this stuff out from first principles. And so there were tons of conversations around like, okay, like what tests should we have for machine learning models? Right. And it, it was a, you know, really brilliant group of, of people there, um, who, who like to, you know, take a problem and, and, uh, you know, break it apart and look at it from the ground up. And so, you know, I think was able to like look at things from, um, you know, all, all the way down to the first principles level through that. Um, and then I think it was, but it was really just about like trying to talk to a lot of the folks that are working in the field and see how they approach some of these things as well. Um, like a, a lot of what we, a lot of what we, uh, the content that we put together in that class came from, you know, like 30 or 40 interviews that we did with, um, with practitioners and just trying to understand, um, you know, we, and we had a good sense of like, what are the hard things and, you know, what, what questions do you need to ask if you're, um, you know, putting together a machine learning, like a applied machine learning team. Um, so just getting kind of a, a range of answers on those was also really helpful. You know, you have kind of a maybe a unique background having been like a, a McKinsey consultant yeah. for a number of years. Do you think that informed you at all? Like, is that, do you think about how that might affect the way you approach this stuff? I think like the, one of the things I learned from McKinsey was um, how to approach like sort of really abstract problems. Like, you know, what should our company do? Or, uh, you know, what should our org structure look like, right? Um, and how to how to create a um, so like these these problems where it's like okay where do I even start in thinking about this problem and I think um, you know the, the question of like how to make machine learning work in the real world has this flavor um, mm. and then figuring out how to like break that down into parts and like structure your thinking around it um, is definitely like one of the the sort of essential things that you have to do as a as a management consultant and so I think that um, yeah that definitely informed the way that I looked at this at this problem. So is there like a piece of your um curriculum that you feel particularly proud of? Yeah, I think the thing that um, that I sort of put the most like uh, emotional energy into is the the troubleshooting guide. Um, oh man, that's, that's actually my favorite part too. <laughs> yeah, because that, that was like, yeah. 
that was the piece where I just, I just felt like I was writing it for my myself a few years ago more than anything else, right? Because totally. I was I was just trying to um, to like answer the you know to I, I was like my perspective when I was writing that was like okay what how could I have saved myself like months of time <laughs> if I you know gone and started over in this field so. Well, so I have to say, you know, I, I got a chance to, um, you know, to work for you briefly <laughs> for, you know, maybe a month or two. Yeah. Um, and I think like one, my big takeaway from you that I always like kind of hear in my head is, is you're like, you know, you're like, you should always slow down and change one thing at a time. And I, I, I mean, I feel like that actually applies to more than, you know, machine learning, honestly. Um, but but boy, does it apply to machine learning. Like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's so essential in machine learning, right? Because it's like fundamentally, I think the thing that makes machine learning so hard is that like, um, you know, when you're when you're writing software, like when you're writing code, um, you know, we have this like pretty, pretty mature ecosystem where like if you um, if you make a mistake, then, you know, usually the the system that you're that you're building or that you're interacting with will tell you first of all, it will tell you that you made a mistake. And second of all, it might even give you like a hint as to where that mistake is. Um, but the the insane thing about like actually trying to make progress on machine learning projects is that um, most of the time when you have a bug, the, the only thing that happens is that the performance of your model like doesn't get better um, as quickly as it should, right? And so there's no way of knowing that you've actually made a mistake a lot of the time, um, other, unless you happen to have like really strong intuition about how, like what your learning curve should look like. Right. And so I, I feel like that's why it's so essential to, to move, you know, move slowly when you're when you're building new machine learning models. Although it's kind of funny because I wonder if like programming, you know, like web applications is, is the outlier here, because I, I think about like, you know, just trying to make an advertising campaign work well or like trying to get my old motorcycle running again. And it's like, you know, it's always better to change one thing because <laughs> it's, it's so hard to tell like what happened otherwise. But I guess maybe we have just better telemetry or APIs with, you know, programming Python or um, JavaScript? I don't know. I feel like that's right. I mean, I think, I don't know. I mean, I, I wouldn't consider myself like a world-class web developer, but when I've done web dev <laughs> stuff, it's also been helpful to still just change one thing at a time. I just feel like... Yeah, maybe it's just good advice for all situations. <laughs> yeah, it might be. Anytime you're building anything. I feel like as you get better at something, you can, you can like increase the, you know, the increment of what you can change at a time, right? Like, like if I'm training a you know, like a image classifier or something, right? Like I can pretty much just start with a, you know, with a like more um, like a newer architecture, like a ResNet or something like that. Just because I've, you know, I've done that enough times that I kind of know what um, what I can expect the result will look like if it works and what common things that go wrong are. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I feel like I can skip a couple of steps, but, you know, when I'm, you know, writing Kubernetes code, right? Like, something I'm very, like very much not good at. Um, I have to, I have to move, still move very, very slowly. Would you be down to kind of walk me through your, um, your troubleshooting steps and, and how you think about them? I bet people will be interested. Yeah. You know, the core concept is what we've been talking about, right? Which is um, to start simple and then layer on complexity one step at a time, right? And so the first question you might have is, what does it mean to start simple, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think that like one of the things I've noticed with people that are, are getting into the field is that you know, there's a tendency to, um, there's all this excitement about around like neural network architectures and, you know, um, the latest and greatest, uh, you know, state of the art model on ImageNet. Um, and, you know, and so I, th I think people like tend to overthink the question of um, architecture selection and, um, you know, and selection of all the other pieces around that, right? Like the, what optimizer you choose and things like that. 
But in reality, you know, I think when you're starting out on a new project, the goal is to just to choose a reasonable default um, and uh, and start there, even if it's not state of the art. And then like once you've convinced yourself that everything around that is working, right? So your data loading code and your training code and um, all of that stuff, then you can like gradually move closer to a state of the art architecture. How do you convince yourself that this stuff is all working? Yeah, it's a hard question. Um, I think that like there's there's some tricks um, that you can use, right? So uh, the first thing that I the first thing that I recommend people do when you're training a, a, a like let's say like a new neural net for the first time is um, just make sure that you can you know first I mean first of all just get the thing to run, right? Like literally just like output something. Just output anything, right? <laughs> Which is not always like as easy as it should be. Um, but like let's say that you've done that. Um, <laughs> Then the next thing that you, I think, usually you want to do is um, try to like overfit a really small amount of data, right? So like a single batch of data, um, and you know it's, it seems really simple, and a lot of people skip over that step because of that. Um, and you know, eighty percent of the time, it's not really necessary, but twenty percent of the time, you can catch some like pretty nasty bugs early on. So like, I, you know, I I often recommend this citing you, <laughs> and I, I think I've. I'm sure that this is not obvious to to most people. Like, what, why do you want to overfit um, a small amount of data? So, like any reasonable like model architecture and optimizer and training loop um, and data type, you know, you should be able to get like, your loss down to zero on a single batch of data, right? Um, you have enough parameters that the the neural net um, should be able to just memorize the data, and so you know. Basically, like if it can't do that, then you know that you must have like a pretty bad bug in in one of those things. Like what kind of bug, for example? Like you flip the sign on your loss function, right? And uh, right. and like your loss actually goes up rather than going down. Um, or you know, like another one that I see all the time is, um, you know, in, in like a lot of these neural network libraries, you have to um, input the like the inputs to the loss function is you know um, maybe it's like the logits, right? So it's like something unnormalized, but um, you know, maybe you took the softmax of that first. Um, and so it's like, it's, it's things like that, right. Where it's, you know, it's just like you wrote, you wrote the code the wrong way. Um, and, uh, this is just like a quick sense check for figuring out, like, is the code that you're running reasonable? Okay. And so then, sorry, I cut you off. Then, then what do you do when, when you can overfit one tiny subset of your data? Yeah. So when you can overfit a tiny subset of your data, then like, I would say like the, you know, one way to think about the process of of uh, making your neural net better and better over time is um, there's like an outer loop and then there's an inner loop, right? Um, and so the outer loop is, um, you know, is basically like you're you're generally trying to do one of two things. Um, you're you're either trying to um, like reduce the amount of underfitting that your neural net has, or reduce the amount of overfitting that the neural net has. Um, and so uh, and like, you know, th there's, there's a lot of strategies for doing both of those things, but, um, the best strategy for, uh, for reducing underfitting is to make your model bigger and for reducing overfitting is to add more data. And so if you think about what we just did with overfitting a single batch of data, um, or with, uh, you know, yeah, like driving loss down to zero on a single batch of data, we're basically saying like, let's take the smallest possible data set and let's overfit it. Right. And so now the, the next like question in your decision tree should be like, all right, um, now we know that we're overfitting um, because we can drive loss down to zero. So the next thing that we should do is reduce overfitting, and the simplest way to do that is to add data. Mm -hmm. um, but you want to do this gradually, right? So 
typically what I would do next is I would move from a single batch of data to like a you know smaller or more simplified version of, of the data set that I was working with. So maybe it's like, I don't know, you just take, maybe you have a million images, but you just take, you know, a thousand or 10,000 of them to start out with. Um, maybe you make a, like a synthetic sort of toy uh, version of the problem that you're working with. You know, if you're doing reinforcement learning, um, maybe you work with like a, um, one of the standard sort of um, simple benchmark uh, problems like, you know, like cart pole or, um, or something like that. Um, and so it's like, you just make, you just make the problem like one step more difficult than a single batch of data. Mm, I see. So you, you add one sort of piece of complexity. Yeah, that's the way I think about it. Is it's like, and, uh, and why why wouldn't you just add all the data that you have? Because because like your conclusions, I imagine they could change at different scales of data. For example. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think there's there's uh, two core reasons, right? So one is um, you. A lot of times. Um, I, I guess like maybe the, the simplest one, one to explain is um, that it just reduces your iteration time, right? So if you're working with a smaller data set or a simpler data set, then typically your model will train faster, it'll be cheaper. Um, and so you can just try out more things more quickly, which is super key. Um, but I think like the deeper and, and more interesting reason is that, um, you know, if you, uh, like a lot of times in, in machine learning, you're working, you um, have like some degree of confidence that you're, that this model should actually be able to solve the task that you're working on. Um, but a lot of times you don't actually know that for a fact, right? Mm -hmm. Like maybe you're doing image classification, but you're not doing it on ImageNet. You're doing it on some other data set. Um, like maybe a, you're, you're classifying like whether something is, a, um, you know, whether a person is wearing a hat in an image or not. Um, and so it's like intuitively you feel like it should be possible to solve this with a neural net, but you don't actually know that for sure. Um, and so you want to you wanna try to, um, isolate this, the sources of error in your problem, right? And so if one of the possible sources of error is that like this data set is just too hard, um, mm -hmm. then it makes sense to start with a version of the data set that you know that your model should be able to do well on. Um, and so smaller data sets, less complex data sets allow you to do that. But wouldn't a smaller data set make the problem harder? In what sense? Like if, say I'm trying to classify if someone has a hat on or not, if, if I have less training data, it might... I would expect my accuracy to, to be lower, right? Hmm. Yeah. Um, that's definitely true. I, I think that like, um, so I guess this comes back to like the overall process that we're trying to follow, right? So it's mm -hmm. like, I think of it as iterating between, you know, eliminating underfitting and eliminating overfitting. Um, yeah. And so the, you know, the, like, if, if you're in a situation where your model is like doing perfectly well on your training set, um, uh -huh then it makes sense to increase the complexity of your training set. Um, uh -huh. If you're in a situation where your model can't do well on the training set, right, then um, then you need to figure out like, you know, is it is it that my training data is too hard? Is it that I need a bigger model? Is it that I need a different architecture? Is it that I need a different optimizer, different hyperparameters, right? Um, and so like working with a data set where, um, you know, that's easier to get to that point of your, of your model overfitting, um, just like, reduces the the number of things that could be wrong with your model. Interesting. Are there more steps to this? I mean, that's that's the high-level flow, right? Is like, um, uh, you know, solve your problem, make it harder, solve your problem, make it harder. Um, and then there's like, there's details about how to make each of those things work well, right? Um, like, what are the steps you should actually try, you know, when you're underfitting and you need to, you need to like make your model more expressive. Um, 
And uh, yeah, but I, I think that like, that's, that's sort of like the, the overall picture. We'll have to uh, put a link to this in the, <laughs> so people can find it. Do you plan to teach more of these classes? I think so, yeah. Um, we don't have um, concrete plans to do another one. I mean, you know, it's, it's uh, not a great time for in-person classes. Maybe a, vir- maybe a virtual one would be a... <laughs> yeah, maybe a virtual one. Um, that could be fun. Hi, we'd love to take a moment to tell you guys about weights and biases. Weights and Biases is a tool that helps you track and visualize every detail of your machine learning models. We help you debug your machine learning models in real time, collaborate easily, and advance the state of the art in machine learning. You can integrate Weights and Biases into your models with just a few lines of code. With hyperparameter sweeps, you can find the best set of hyperparameters for your models automatically. You can also track and compare how many GPU resources your models are using. With one line of code, you can visualize model predictions in form of images, videos, audio, plotly charts, molecular data, segmentation maps, and 3D point clouds. You can save everything you need to reproduce your models days, weeks, or even months after training. Finally, with reports, you can make your models come alive. Reports are like blog posts in which your readers can interact with your model metrics and predictions. Reports serve as a centralized repository of metrics, predictions, hyperparameter stride, and accompanying notes. All of this together gives you a bird's eye view of your machine learning workflow. You can use reports to share your model insights, keep your team on the same page, and collaborate effectively remotely. I'll leave a link in the show notes below to help you get started. And now let's get back to the episode. Do you have any advice, I suppose, to, to folks um, wanting to get into machine learning? I'm sure a lot of you, you probably watch a lot of students kind of learn it or not learn it. Are there, do they have any sense of like what's required? Some people look at something like machine learning and they say like, okay, this is a, you know, this is a really um, deep field, right? And there's a lot of, there's a lot to learn here. Um, there's a lot of complexity, like so many papers, thousands of papers coming out every month. Um, and so I want to just, you know, I want to just drink from the fire hose and try to try to just learn as much as possible. Um, and then on the other extreme, there's folks that say like, look, this, this field is so complex that, um, you know, I, I want to just like pick a problem and solve that problem. Um, and I think there's like there's fail, failure modes on both ends of that. Um, mm-hmm. I think I've like I work with people who um, you know see the complexity of the field and react to that by just like learning more and more and more, but never actually like really getting their hands dirty and um, figuring out how to make this stuff work in you know for the problems that they care about. Um, I think that typically doesn't work. Um, and then I you know I I've seen like probably just as many people who are who you know don't want to deal with the complexity like don't want to learn the math. Um, don't want to, you know, um, understand how a confident works. Um, and I think that that also limits your ability to like make progress in the field. Um, because ultimately it's, you know, it's, it's, um, closer to a science than an engineering discipline right now, I would say. Um, and so I think you need to, you know, you need to like balance spending time on actually doing stuff and, you know, like following tutorials and making things work. And then also like going back and backfilling like, okay, now I've trained, a, I've trained, you know, confident on this image classification task. 
like I know how to write the TensorFlow code. Now let me actually go back and understand how CompNet works. The the folks that you've seen that have like really that have been successful, like like really, you know, kind of learned this stuff and had like you know started to get good careers as, as successful people. Do you think they spend more time on the theory on average, or or more time on the practical hands on stuff, or is there some other third thing that they're doing more of that that makes them successful? I would say more time on the practical hands on stuff. The one of the interesting things about machine learning is that. Um, there's, although there's a ton of complexity in the field, um, there's a relatively small number of like sort of core ideas that you actually need to really, really deeply understand in order to, um, in order to be an expert in the field, right? Like understanding, um, you know, understanding attention um, in neural nets is really important. Um, understanding how backpropagation works is really important. But like understanding, you know, all of the different state of the art architectures for um, for like, you know, uh, doing object detection, not really very important unless you happen to be like working full time on that problem. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I would say that like the people that I know that have successfully learned the field have um, tried to, I would say that they've spent more time with a smaller number of ideas. Um, and, you know, rather than like trying to read, you know, five new papers every day, they've like went out and talked to people and figured out what the five most important papers are. And then I've spent, you know, weeks with each of those to like really deeply understand them. Um, but then I've probably spent the balance of their time, like actually trying things and implementing things. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. When you look at the papers that you've written, <laughs> do you have a, do you have a favorite? I think my favorite is actually the, the, uh, the first one that I was like the lead author on, um, which was the, the domain randomization paper. Oh, cool. Cool. Sim, sim to real. Sim to real. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell me the real process of kind of like, you know, thinking of that idea and then like trying it and how that all, um, how that all happened? Well, I guess first describe the idea because it's a, it seems like one, like the rare paper you can really kind of succinctly describe it, right? Yeah. When I was starting to work in this field, right? So like the intersection of deep learning and robotics um, in, you know, back in 2015, um, there was a lot of excitement around reinforcement learning being applied to, to robotics, right? So like, Reinforcement learning, um, you know, you have an agent that interacts with an environment, it um, takes some observations of the environment, decides what action to take, and then gets a signal back to the, from the environment, which is a reward that tells it, like, did I do a good job or a bad job? And then over time, it iteratively learns how to interact with that environment and, um, and improve its performance on whatever task it's supposed to be doing, right? And so it's like a very natural abstraction for robotics. Um, and, you know, Back in 2015, like deep reinforcement learning was like starting to have a bit of a renaissance, right? It was, um, you know, uh, starting to work really well on Atari games. Um, you know, I think that was, you know, 2015 or 2016 was when um, DeepMind beat the best human players in Go, right? And um, and so people were looking at this and saying like, wow, this could actually this could be like the you know the the like most important technology to come to robotics in a really long time. Um, and so I, I was. You know, early on in my PhD at, at that point, and um, like the the exciting thing to work on was like coming up with what's the best new you know reinforcement learning algorithm. Like, how can we improve our performance on all these tasks? Um, and you know, I, but I was like very new to the field, and I didn't feel like I had a good um, you know I felt like I it would not be very smart for me to try to compete with people who uh, like have have been studying this stuff for years and um, 
and had like a lot of insights into what made those algorithms work, right? And so what I tried to do was think about like, okay, what are, what are like the enabling pieces that we need in order to actually, for this story to come true, right? For the story that like deep, deep reinforcement learning is gonna have a big impact on robotics. Um, and for me, the the big, like the, um, the, the piece that was kind of missing for that story was that, you know, deep reinforcement learning is very powerful, but it's very data inefficient. Like all these sort of state-of-the-art results that you see um, happen in environments where you can sort of simulate everything that's happening um, because it takes, you know, hundreds of millions or more of interactions with the environment to actually get to the point where you have human-level behavior. Um, and so, like, for me, kind of looking into this field from the outside, that was sort of the big question mark, right? Is like, is there any way for us to get around this data inefficiency problem for robots, right? Because like going out and collecting hundred million, you know, uh, examples of a robot interacting with an environment is not, not very cost effective, let's say. Google did this, right? With an arm farm? Mm -hmm. So it's definitely possible, but it's, uh, you know, do you really want to have to have like a uh, you know dozens of robot arms running twenty four seven for weeks every time you want to learn a new behavior. Sure, yeah. And so like so you know the um, coming back to to this paper right like the the question that I was that I got interested in was is there any way to learn behaviors in a physics simulator right um, where you actually have access to hundreds of millions of labeled examples but then somehow make that work when the robot is put out into the real world. I was kind of working on this. Um, you know, back when I was an intern at OpenAI, um, and we had like a really concrete problem that we were trying to solve, which is, uh, you know, we were we were trying to set up a robot to like make a st uh, stack of blocks. Um, so to like pick up blocks from a table and then, you know, stack them on top of each other. And, you know, like the, the policy, like the robot behavior was trained, uh, assuming that you actually know where the blocks are in the real world. And so then we needed to like go back and backfill, like how do we actually find out you know, how do, how do we estimate the position of each of these blocks in the real world? Mm -hmm. um, seems It's something that seems like a really easy problem, but it actually, when you think about how do you make this really work, it's more complicated than you'd expect. Honestly, it's it's so counterintuitive. I think, you know, even for me and probably for most people, right, that that's hard. You know, I mean, just it's, it's amazing that that's hard. Yeah. And I think... Um, you know, it's not the it's not like the hardest research problem in the world, but it's it's like when you actually sit down and try to go and make it work r really well, it's um it's very tricky. Sure. Um, and so we were playing around with you know um, these different like tag uh, you know Aruko tags and um, like methods like that where you know the you understand the like the intrinsics of the camera and then um, you know it reads this like this tag off of an object and then it can you know infer the position of the object you know, given the position of the camera. Um, and we just found those things to be like really fragile um, and not honestly, not really that accurate um, without investing in like expensive setup and expensive camera equipment and stuff like that. Um, and so the question was like, you know, we were mostly deep learning folks, right? And so the obvious question is like, why don't you just train a neural net to do this? Mm -hmm. um, you know, just train a neural net to take an image of a table and then say like, okay, here are the position of all of the, of all of the cubes on the table. Um, but the problem is that like, where do you get the labels for the data set that you collect? Right, you almost need to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. um, you almost need to know, you need to know where the where the cubes are in order to actually get the, the labeled data set that you use to train the neural net, right? So it's a bit of a chicken and egg problem. And so this is kind of the starting point for me working on, uh, working on this symptom real problem is like, okay, this, this feels like the simplest possible example of 
a, a problem where um, maybe synthetic data, you know, data from a physics simulator would actually help. So then describe what, what you did. So the, the core idea is that, you know, if you just take data from a, a simulator kind of naively and train a model on it, um, the problem is that, you know, there's quirks of your simulator, right? Your simulator doesn't perfectly match the real world. And so um, the neural net will overfit to any difference um, between the data in the simulator and the data in the real world. So, you know, if you didn't perfectly model the lighting, you didn't perfectly model the color of the cube, um, the neural net won't transfer. And so the idea that that we um, that we had was like, what if you, um, instead of just taking like a single best physics simulator, what if you massively randomize every aspect of, of the simulator that's not you know, critically important to solving the task, right? So you randomize the colors of all the objects, um, you randomize their positions, you randomize the position of the camera, um, you randomize the background, and, um, and you know, you, it produces images that are like crazy and like unrealistic looking, right? So they're, they look like, um, you know, they look like scenes from like a, uh, from like an anime disco or something. Um, but what happens is that actually the, the neural net, um, you know, in learning how to estimate the position of the cube in all of these different, like massively different worlds, um, is forced to not rely on the parts of the simulator that are not um, essential for solving the task, right? So if the, if the color of the cube changes in every single data point, then uh, the neural net can't create a feature that depends on the color of the cube to solve mm -hmm. the task. Um, because that's just an unreliable piece of information. Um, and so then when you do this, it turns out that you can train neural nets on entirely simulated data. Um, so no real world data at all that actually work when they're deployed in the real world. Because you you just kind of like cycle through lots of colors and shadows and other... Uh... Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's, uh, you know, you, you basically like, you basically show the, the neural net like every every color and every shadow that um, you know, it could even possibly see. Um, and so then it, it like, it, in order to solve the task, it needs to learn like, okay, that's, you know, colors and shadows are not important, right? What's important is like the position of this cube looking thing on the table. Um, and so it's not overfitting to like all, the, all the details that are unimportant. Um, and it's actually, and so then, you know, the, the, the details that it is looking at are the ones hopefully that will transfer over when it's deployed in the real world. And so how far can this generalize? Like, has, like, has this been applied to more than stacking blocks now? Yeah, um, it's been applied to like a pretty wide range of sort of computer vision and robotics tasks um, at this point. I think, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's been applied to um, my favorite like random application was uh, there's a paper about using domain randomization to um, uh, train a robot to uh, pick fish out of a barrel. Really? Yeah. Wow. Um, which is actually a really hard task because fish are very shiny and slippery, right? Um, yeah. And yeah. like, and in general, like um, most like object detection methods and like computer vision stuff has has trouble with like objects that have a lot of reflections and things like that. Um, so that was my favorite like random application. But <laughs> you know, it's it's been applied to um, you know folding cloth. It's been applied to um, you know pretty wide range of computer vision problems. And I think like maybe the most, um, the furthest this idea has been pushed is, uh, was at OpenAI um, in, you know, when they, they use, uh, they use this technique to um, have a robot hand that solves uh, a Rubik's cube. 
Can you say a little bit about why that was such an impressive task? Or I guess there was some, maybe there was some controversy, right? About like, is this sort of like a stunt or is this like a real deep task? I guess, where, where do you land on that? So maybe maybe the, the, the different sides of this issue would be like, um, on one hand, you know, I think if you look at, if you look at the types of things that, um, you know, the types of tasks that people have been able to solve with robots over the years, um, the this task of this sort, right, like um, using a high dimensional dexterous robot to manipulate a complicated object um, are very sort of few and far between in the robotics world. And it's kind of generally seen as like, you know, high dimensional contact rich dexterous manipulation as being like sort of one of the grand challenges of robotics. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think one point of view on this is that even just something at like a proof of concept level to show that it's like possible to even do this once is um, a big step for the field because, um, you know, there's there's very few examples of, um, there are some, but there's very few examples of, of, uh, of projects that have pushed um, robotic manipulation as far as, you know, being able to, to solve a Rubik's Cube. Um, mm -hmm. I think the other perspective would just be that, like, you know, if you look at the details in the paper, the algorithm, like, actually works, you know, something like 20% of the time. Um, and so you might argue that, like, um, you know, and, and it was a pretty big effort to get to, to actually make it work for the first time, right? So, um, you know, pretty big team um, working on it for a long time. And so you might argue that, like, yeah, obviously, if you put, you know, 10 or 12 really brilliant people and have them work on, you know, one tiny, like, sliver of a problem for for a long time, then obviously, they'll, they'll be able to make it work once. Um, I would say that, you know, that's not obvious to me. <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying to play devil's advocate here. <laughs> like my, my bias is that it's an important result in robotics. And I think that, um, you know, but I think like the, the perspective that you have to, that you have to have when you look at this is that, um, you know, is very much a research result, right? Like I think a mistake that people make when looking at results like this, and I think this is true in AI in general, is that like you look at, you know, humans, um, or like computers being better than humans at any task. And you say like, okay, this means that like robots are gonna take this job in two years. And it's like, not like if you look at the details of how hard it was to actually make this work once, you know, 20% of the time, it's like, there's a lot more research that'll need to happen in order for this to become a thing that robots can do reliably. Um, but I do think there's a lot of value in the proof of concept just to show that like, this is, you know, this is a, a, a set of techniques that um, you know, this team was able to push far enough to, to do this task that is like objectively really difficult for robots to do. Um, and then, you know, over time, the field will backfill, like how to actually do that in a more efficient way. I guess it's, I didn't realize it only worked 20% of the time. This is like 20% success rate, meaning completely manipulated the cube to be back in the, the like correct state. Is that right? Yeah, I think the like I think the fine print is um, for a for the like hardest variant of the problem, which is like the cube randomized as much as it can be. Um, mm -hmm. The robot was only able to get it back to fully solved twenty percent of the time. Um, I think on average it did it more than that, and I think also, yeah, like maybe one of the other details people took issue with was uh, the fact that there was the the machine learning algorithm itself did not you know, didn't, didn't say like the sequence of actions that you need to solve the cube. Mm. Right. Um, it didn't like, it wasn't like a neural net was saying, you know, turn this face and then turn this face and then turn this face. Um, the, there was like a, 
hard-coded solver that was saying the sequence of actions that you take. Um, and then the neural net was just saying like, okay, here's how you move your fingers in order to achieve this action. Um, so the point, the point was the manipulation. So people are mad because it was like a fun demonstration. <laughs> I think, you know, I think people often uh, take issue with the way that OpenAI communicates results like this, um, more so than the results themselves. Because it seems like they're generating attention. Is that right? I think so, yeah. Yeah, I think um, there's, a, there's a bit of a tension in the field right now of, you know, between um, kind of people who uh, maybe have more traditional academic roots and who think that, um, you know, the it's like the quality of the scholarship that's important. And mm -hmm. like, you know, whether it's truly novel, you know, um, whether the results are like, really understandable and reproducible, um, you know, on one hand. And then on the other hand, you know, folks, you know, who typically are more at more of like a, um, the more industrial research lab type places where I think the, the viewpoint is more like, um, our goal is to, you know, our goal is to like push the state of the art of the field forward. Um, and if we have to do that in a way that's like not totally, you know, not hundred percent reproducible just because like maybe the experiment was too expensive. Um, mm -hmm. and that's okay because we're, we're moving the, we're moving the goalposts forward of like the types of things that AI is able to do. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. And I think there's like kind of a fundamental tension there. That makes sense. So I guess you've, you've left, uh, open AI. So what are you, what are you working on now, Josh? Yeah. Um, no, it's a good question. You know, one of the things that I learned through full stack deep learning is, um, I guess maybe one of the beliefs that I have about this field is that, like, um, I think, you know, there's there's this this narrative in the machine learning world that, like, um, you know, AI is going to be be part of everything, and you know, um, like, it's going to be like software where it's like just sort of happening in the background as part of like every little thing that we do, um, and it's going to enable all these like amazing new applications like self-driving cars. But in general, it's just going to be like there in the background, making the world like 10 or 15% more efficient or more. I don't know, but we're not there yet. And so like one of the kind of core questions for me over the last, you know, six months or so since I left OpenAI has been, why is that, right? Like what is, what's blocking us from, you know, having like just a little bit of machine learning that's just making sort of every piece of software that we interact with um, smarter. Um, and that's kind of, that's sort of the, the, the root uh, like the, the fundamental question that I, that I'm trying to answer with this company. Yeah. It's so interesting. We, we actually always have been ending this podcast with two questions and that question has been, um, one of them. I mean, you've, you've clearly like been spending a lot of time thinking about it. Like what's some of your, um, conclusions? Like if you, if you had to pick like one thing, what, what would that be? I mean, I think this comes back to our conversation about the robot hand, right? Like, um, I think the field has gotten really good at, um, doing really impressive things once. Um, and, but then, you know, um, one of the, like the dirty secrets of machine learning is that, um, turning something that works once or like, I don't know, works is 90% accurate on like one data set, um, mm -hmm. turning that into like a reliable production system that you can, um, you know, that is, um, auditable and is maintainable and, uh, it's understandable and you can actually like start to run your business on, um, mm -hmm. that's really hard, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, uh, 
I think like figuring out how to answer that question is sort of the, is like the big question that the field needs to answer right now. Yeah, I guess it's kind of um, counterintuitive to see a computer do something 20% of the time. Like that, that feels like a really, uh, like, I feel like most times if I see a computer do something that I know, like, okay, that's, it's going to do that 100% of the time. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it's like, you know, maybe one of the other things that I've like, that I've seen through, uh, through full stack deep learning and through like some of the other, the other folks that I've talked to who are like trying to implement machine learning in their companies is that, um, often, oftentimes like one of the hardest things to do is just like figure out how to get, you know, the executives in your company, let's say like the folks that are making the decisions, but are not deep in the technology to actually understand what can we, what can we really do with this stuff? Mm -hmm. Right. And it's like, yeah, I think that's the one of the things that's really hard about, about machine learning is that like, it's, uh, it's, it's not always clear. There's not always a clear connection between like what you read about what it can do and what it can actually do. Um, and like communicating that I think is like another big challenge for the field. Do you have any suggestions there? I mean, almost everybody we've talked to has brought that up. Someone needs to like, make a really good class. Uh, that's like AI for, you know, for everyone. Um, Andrew Ng has a class. I haven't gone through it. Maybe that's, maybe that's the answer. Um, but, uh, I think like you can build intuition for this stuff, but I think it's, that doesn't come from, you know, that doesn't come from reading like the New York times headlines. Uh, it comes from actually sitting down and looking at examples of things that work and things that don't work. Um, so I don't have a good suggestion, but I do think that there's a big opportunity to like, to, you know, to make that. You know, it's funny. I've, I've heard that, um, that, like IBM Watson in its heyday would like, you know, like fly executives, you know, to like a lab and just like kind of blow their minds and get them like hyped out of their minds at the the potential of AI. It's just like really awesome demos. And I've always had this fantasy of like doing like the opposite of that, you know, like, <laughs> you know, do like an hour with like execs and make it like really kind of hard and boring and like, you know, let them like fight with the... <laughs> Yeah, for a while, like, you know, even just trying to like, you know, tune some hyperparameters to like actually get the thing working. I think it would be a fun, um, like a fun, I think it may be an informative experience, um, you know, for a lot of people, maybe help the execs understand why their, you know, ML teams aren't producing results as fast as they were hoping. I think that, I think that also like one thing that would help a lot is, um, I think the, the methodology you know, this is like sort of what we tried to do with full stack deep learning, but maybe didn't really get um, all the way there. But I think that like the methodology of successfully building machine learning systems is still pretty immature, right? Like um, it shares a lot with software engineering, but is really a different field. Um, mm -hmm. I think that like, you know, if there were like an agile equivalent for building machine learning systems, I think that would also go a long way. Um, Cause it's really just like the block and tackle of like, how do you actually make this happen? Um, so it doesn't feel as much like magic and like, what are those crazy data scientists doing over in their corner over there? And it feels a little bit more like, um, like, okay, I understand that, you know, this is the set of meetings that the team is having every week and this is how they're measuring their progress. Um, I think like something more operational like that could also go a long way. Mm. Seems like you'd be the right guy to figure that out. I don't know. Maybe, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Um, all, right, and, all right. Here's the other question we always end with, which I'm, I'm really curious to know what you'll say. Um, so just off the top of your head, um, what's like a sort of underappreciated topic in machine learning that you think people should talk about more? I mean, given all the hype on so many of the topics, what's a, what's a piece that people don't pay enough attention to? 
I think that people don't pay enough attention to uh, to quality of their training data. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> I agree. I agree, Josh. <laughs> but it's so important. <laughs> so important. Nice. All right. Well, that was really fun. Thanks for uh, taking the time to chat. Yeah, thanks for having me on.